Welcome to The Last Month at the Federal Circuit, a look at recent Federal Circuit decisions impacting the intellectual property community. Finnegan partner Mike Jakes joins us now to offer insight into the Federal Circuit, its recent cases, and their potential implications. Mike is currently the leader of Finnegan's appellate practice. He has appeared in over 100 appeals at the Federal Circuit and argued over 50 times. Mike, thanks for joining us. You've talked about the Arthrex case on previous podcasts. What's the latest? Well, after the Supreme Court decided Arthrex last year in uh, June 2021, an issue came up of whether the acting director of the Patent and Trademark Office could uh, fulfill the function of reviewing the PTAB's decisions. As uh, most listeners will recall, Arthrex had challenged the constitutionality of the appointment of the administrative patent judges, uh, those judges that make up the Patent and Trial and Appeal Board. The Supreme Court said that the PTAB judges had not been nominated by the president and confirmed by the Senate as required by the appointments clause for principal officers. So for the the appointment of the PTAB judges to be constitutional, their decisions had to be subject to review by the director of the patent office, who is a principal officer. The court said, uh, quote, only an officer properly appointed to a principal office may issue a final decision binding the executive branch. After the Supreme Court's decision, the Federal Circuit reinstated the appeals that had been vacated because the PTAB judges were not constitutionally appointed. The Federal Circuit then gave the appellants, and this applied only to losing patent owners who had raised raised the issue, the Federal Circuit gave them a choice, continue with the merits of the appeal or accept a remand back to the patent office to seek director review. Many of the appellants took the second option and had their cases remanded. Uh, To comply with the Supreme Court's Arthrex decision, the Patent Office then created a procedure by which a party could petition to have a board decision reheard by the director. But there was a problem. The director of the Patent and Trademark Office position was vacant, and so was the deputy director position. These positions had been vacant for over a year. There was no one leading the office who had been appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate. What did the Patent Office do? Uh, The Patent Office didn't wait until a new director was appointed and confirmed. Instead, the responsibility for deciding rehearing petitions by the director fell to the Commissioner of Patents. There was a standing directive that made the commissioner the acting director. So in those cases that were remanded for director review, the acting director, the Commissioner of Patents, decided the rehearing petitions. One of the parties who had requested rehearing by the director was Arthrex itself. So the commissioner or acting director in that case denied rehearing and ordered that the board's decision was the final decision of the agency. And was that the end of the story? Uh, Not yet. And it's still not over. Arthrex appealed again to the federal circuit, arguing that the commission's exercise of the director's authority to decide rehearing petitions again violated the appointments clause. In other words, Arthrex argued that it never got the remedy ordered by the Supreme Court, namely a decision on its petition by a presidentially appointed Senate-confirmed officer. The Federal Circuit, just recently, in an opinion by Chief Judge Moore, rejected Arthrex's challenges uh, this time and said, in this situation, an inferior officer acting on a temporary basis could perform the functions of a presidentially appointed and Senate-confirmed officer. The court found that the Federal Vacancies Reform Act, 
which is a statute intended to limit the time a temporary official can serve in a Senate-confirmed position, that that did not apply here. And so, four years after the board's decision, the Federal Circuit finally reached the merits of the case and affirmed the decision that Arthrex's claims were unpatentable. Hmm. So now, is that the end? Uh, Somehow, I doubt it. I expect there will be another cert petition to the Supreme Court. There has already been some criticism of the Federal Circuit's decision, calling it a loophole that undercuts the incentives for a president to seek Senate confirmation of agency officials. And that would apply across all federal agencies, not just the Patent and Trademark Office. And even so, allowing a temporary official to perform the functions of the director, it also seems to undermine the Arthrex decision itself, which said that the individual making final decisions for the agency could not be an inferior officer. At this point, because there is a new director in place, the Arthrex decision shouldn't have a lasting impact on pending cases, at least. But the decision cuts more broadly across all federal agencies, and the director position will undoubtedly be vacant again someday. So perhaps we haven't heard the end of Arthrex. Okay. Well, another topic you've covered in previous podcasts is Section 101. It's been over 10 years since you argued the Bilski case at the Supreme Court. Where are we now on on 101? We're in the same place we've been for several years. The federal circuit and district courts are still struggling with how to apply the Alice Mayo test fairly and consistently. There have been numerous cert petitions filed in the Supreme Court begging for clarification, but the court has turned them all down. The federal circuit judges have repeatedly suggested that the Alice Mayo test is unworkable and uh, something should be done, either clarification from the Supreme Court or legislation from Congress. But so far, nothing. So the courts continue to do the best they can. Well, speaking of clarification, the American Axel case is still pending at the Supreme Court. Will that be the case where the court finally speaks again on on Section 101? It very well could be. Uh, The American Axel case has been pending for a long time at the Supreme Court. In that case, the Federal Circuit held that a method of manufacturing a drive shaft that reduces vibrations was not eligible for patenting under 101. Now, just for some background, the method in American Axle starts with a hollow shaft member. It then tunes the mass and stiffness of a liner. This liner acts as an absorber to reduce both bending mode and shell mode vibrations. The specification identifies various properties of the liner, such as its material, thickness, and shape, which are controlled to match a desired frequency of vibration. The liner is then inserted into the shaft member. That's the method of American Axle. A divided panel of the Federal Circuit said that the American Axle patent claim was directed to a natural law, namely Hooke's Law. Hooke's Law is an equation that describes the relationship between an object's mass and the frequency at which it vibrates. The majority of the Federal Circuit panel concluded that the method simply required the application of Hooke's Law to tune a drive shaft liner, and so it was ineligible for patenting under Section 101. The full Federal Circuit denied rehearing and bank in an even split, six to six. There were five opinions concurring in or dissenting from the denial, with several of the opinions suggesting or more like begging the Supreme Court for guidance and clarification. American Axel then filed a cert petition in December 2020. 18 months ago. What's taken so long for the Supreme Court to act on the petition? 
Well, as it often does, the Supreme Court asked for the views of the Solicitor General. That was in May 2021, over a year ago. And the SG's office uh, just filed their brief three weeks ago. And they recommended that the Supreme Court take the case. What do you expect the Supreme Court will do with American Axel? Well, we should know very soon. <laughs> the American Axel case is scheduled for conference at the Supreme Court on June 23rd. We could know whether the court is going to take the case by June 27, which is the last day of the term. Of course, there's a lot going on at the Supreme Court during the last few weeks of the term, so the case could get held over until the fall. I won't try to predict what the Supreme Court will do with American Axel. At one time or another, every judge on the federal circuit has said that the Supreme Court needs to clarify the law in Section 101. And now the Solicitor General has weighed in saying that the court should take the American Axel case. But the Supreme Court has resisted previous pleas for help, like in the Athena Diagnostics case, um, where the Supreme Court denied cert in 2020. The federal circuit split on rehearing and bank in that case, too. There were eight different opinions, either concurring in or dissenting from the denial of hearing. And even just this week, the Supreme Court turned down yet another cert petition, this time filed by a company called Amaranth, whose patent was invalidated under 101. But I'd say it's probably now or never. If American Axel isn't the case, then I guess I'd have to say the Supreme Court isn't going to take another 101 case anytime soon. Thanks for those updates, Mike. Let's turn now to the recent case of Pavo Solutions versus Kingston Technology Company, which was decided by the Federal Circuit on June 3rd. What did you find interesting about this case? What's interesting about the case is that the district court actually corrected the patent claim language. It replaced the word case with the word cover, even though they described two different parts of the device. And the Federal Circuit affirmed. There aren't many cases where the courts have corrected claim language like this. Usually the patent owner is stuck with the claim language as it is. The Federal Circuit has said before that courts can't redraft claims to make them operable or sustain their validity. But the courts have allowed judicial correction of obvious minor typographical and clerical errors. Uh, for example, the Federal Circuit altered a chemical formula in a claim by inserting a comma where a person skilled in the art would have known that the comma was missing and was a mistake. The Pavo case is one of those rare cases. What was the error in the Pavo case that was corrected? So the patent in Pavo was directed to a flash memory drive that plugs into a USB port, you know, a thumb drive. The invention didn't concern the memory itself, but rather concerned the cover. Instead of a separate cover to protect the part that plugs into the USB port, the device has a rotary cover. You've probably seen USB drives like this. Uh, the case that houses the flash memory has a circular bump on the side. The cover is U-shaped, usually made of metal, and has a hole on one side that goes over the bump. The cover can be rotated to either cover or expose the part that plugs into the USB port. The patent claims called for a flash memory main body that had a rectangular case. Then it called for a cover, which has a pair of parallel plates spaced apart by the thickness of the case with a hinge hole to mount on a bump on the case. The critical claim language said that this hinge hole received the protuberance or the bump on the case, quote, for pivoting the case with respect to the flash memory body. It should have said for pivoting the cover with respect to the body, what was shown in the patent. In uh, doing the claim construction, the district court corrected the claim language and changed the word case to cover. So what did the Federal Circuit do? The Federal Circuit said the district court was right. 
a court can correct obvious minor typographical and clerical errors in a patent, and this was one. The error has to be evident from the face of the patent, uh, from the perspective of a person skilled in the art, and then two additional requirements have to be met. First, the correction can't be subject to reasonable debate based on consideration of the claim language and the specification, and the prosecution history can't suggest a different interpretation of the claim. So here in the Pavo case, both conditions were met. The claims weren't broadened by the correction either. The claims otherwise required that the cover pivot with respect to the flash memory body. Um, interestingly, during an inter-party review of the patent, Pavo asked the board to make the same correction, and the board denied that request. Now, according to the Federal Circuit, the board denied correction only on procedural grounds. Pavo had already filed its preliminary response in the IPR, and the oral hearing was less than two months away. The board said that changes to the claims at that late stage could lead to a moving target, which was unfair to the petitioner. But remember, uh, the Federal Circuit said the correction didn't change the claim scope, so it's really hard to see that the change was in fact a moving target. Did the Federal Circuit decide any other issues in the Pavo case? Yes. Interestingly, the court also addressed willful infringement. A jury had found that Kingston's infringement of the patent was willful, and the Federal Circuit affirmed that as well. Now, Kingston argued, how could it be willful when it didn't infringe the claims as originally written? It couldn't have anticipated that a court would later correct the claims. The Federal Circuit rejected this argument and held, quote, reliance on an obvious minor clerical error in the claim language is not a defense to willful infringement, period, end of quote. In other words, Kingston couldn't rely on the, this error in the claim language for willful infringement. It also couldn't rely on the PTAB's refusal to correct the claim either, since the, port, the board had denied the request on procedural ground. Plus, as the court said, the time for determining culpability for willful infringement is when the infringer knew of the patent and infringed anyway. The board's decision came later and couldn't exonerate Kingston. So, fair warning from the Federal Circuit. Don't rely on an obvious clerical error in claim language to justify infringing a patent. All right, well, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much, Mike. You've been listening to a podcast from Finnegan, one of the largest IP law firms in the world. We've been speaking with Finnegan partner, Mike Jakes. For more commentary on intellectual property news and issues, to listen to other podcasts, and to receive additional information on the firm, please visit www.finnegan.com. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Finnegan.